And welcome to episode eight of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm coming to you over the podcasting networks of iTunes, Spotify, and Google. The YouTube simulcast is going to be very important today because we're going to be answering questions. Today's show is a mailbag show, and on YouTube, you'll be able to see the questions as well as perhaps some of the graphs, or more importantly, our faces as we're flummoxed by your difficult questions. Joining me, as always, is the head of global research at Alhambra Investments, a man that needs no introduction and therefore will get no introduction going forward. I'll simply invest, introduce him as Jeff Snyder. Jeff, great to see you. I'm excited. Our very first mailbag show. Yeah, I think our people have a lot of questions. We have a lot of very interesting ideas, and of course, that's that's generated quite a bit of uh, you know commentary about you know what exactly you're talking about. Well, uh, if you if your question is not answered today, that's because it's not a great. It's not that it's not a great question. We just didn't get to it. So please keep them coming. You can do so on the YouTube channels. Just search for money, not money sense making sense and on twitter you'll find jeff at jeff snyder underscore aip and you'll find me at emil kalinowski on twitter jeff let's get to the wood question number one and for the audience you'll be happy to know we have not rehearsed these so these are happening live yeah i haven't even seen them yet so these are natural and and, uh, ad hoc conversations and answers Our first question comes from BA, and it comes from a couple of months ago. And the question is, does unlimited dollar funding to other central banks solve this issue? And the issue he's referencing is offshore dollars, dollar swaps, the Federal Reserve. Jeff? No, it doesn't. And and the reason is because, again, we have to we have to break it down and and understand exactly what the Federal Reserve is doing. What the Fed is doing, as the question pointed out or the questioner pointed out, all the Fed is doing is offering dollar swaps to other central banks around the world. And initially it was only a group of five, 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 I believe, central banks, the major central banks around the world. No China, no emerging markets. None of those people were involved until later wasn't until March 18th and 19th that the Fed finally changed its rules. So what the Fed is actually doing in the, in the figurative sense is, is, is not performing its role of, of dollar central bank. It's actually saying, look, dollar problems outside of the United States aren't really our problem, but we recognize that there is an offshore dollar system. Therefore, we got to do something. So we're going to do as little as we possibly can. And that little we possibly can is to let other central banks sort out their own dollar mess. So what the Fed actually does is it's giving these dollar swaps, uh, these dollar swap lines to these other central banks so that these other central banks around the world can then try to handle a dollar shortage in their own local jurisdictions. And of course, central banks are not set up to redistribute dollar resources in an efficient, dynamic manner. They're very bureaucratic. And they're rigid, as of, as of the Fed show. I mean, the Fed, there was no dollar swap usage at all until late in March because the Fed had said, well, we're only giving dollar swaps to these five central banks. So it, it's, it's not any different for the other central banks using their dollar swap or accessing the dollar swaps either. The way in which local central banks try to deal with their own dollar problem is insufficient to 
recognize or even uh, even uh, come up with something even close to a solution to a local dollar problem outside the United States. Because again, the Federal Reserve says it's not my problem. I don't want to deal with this. We're just, we're a domestic bank regulator. We're not really anything more than that, but there's dollars out there. We know that causes so much problems. So we're going to let other central banks handle it in their own way. That's, that's hardly a solution to what is a massive world-spanning, dynamic problem. And to show that that is actually what happened previously, because this has happened at least twice before, dollar swaps. So with the audience right now, I'm sharing a graph, and what I'm showing is the dollar swap total by the Federal Reserve with those other banks, and the green line that you see is the dollar. And what you'll notice is the dollar continued to rise despite the surge in dollar swaps. Uh, we saw that in 2008, and we saw that in 2011 and 12. The dollar continued to rise. And I would think that if you're trying to alleviate a dollar problem, a dollar shortage, that you would see the dollar coming off the boil, as our British friends love to say, if these dollar swaps are being effective. And I don't know if they really do make any difference, at least to the dollar. It's, you know, it's more window dressing, Emil. It's more of the central bank saying, hey, look, we're doing something. We've got, we've got it covered. Don't worry about, don't ask questions. Don't, you know, we've got it all done. There's big numbers here. So just, just, be, just be comforted by the fact that we've got these swap lines open and they, you know, take our word for it. It's, it's another one of these trust us kind of moments that doesn't survive even the smallest little bit of scrutiny. As you just showed, I mean, what you just, one chart basically blows apart the whole thing. You know, the dollar kept going up, even though we had all of these hundreds of billions in dollar swaps that were available and operational and swap lines all over the world. And it just, it just, it doesn't work because it's a very poor substitute for what the market provides. Question number two comes from late March from Nick T. And it starts off with a joke at my expense, but then it gets to the meat of it, which is how is the repo and interbank funding market the backbone of every other market in the world? To be specific, how does the collateral shortage in the repo market, for example, affect equities? What's the transmission mechanism? You've often said that the repo market is the, the real backstop of the international funding market. Can, can you make a link to other assets, other markets? Well, I know. I wish I could. I wish there was data that showed exactly what goes, you know, a, a flow chart from here to there and everywhere else. It's really, look, the, the repo market is the primary liquidity market for this global offshore dollar system. It is, you know, massive, it's hidden, it's opaque, and it's, it's vital and crucial to the way the world actually works on a daily basis. And I think that's the key point is that the world runs, the dollar system runs on the repo market, which requires collateral. And I spend so much time on the collateral side because frankly, that's where all the interesting stuff happens. It's not really about the cash side, it's really about the collateral side. So, you know, the fact that it's a central backbone to this offshore world-spanning global euro dollar system is simply, it's just the, the, way, it, the way it is, the reality. That's, you know, the way the system developed and, and evolved over the last, you know, half a century for four reasons. I mean, obvious, I think a lot of the reasons why it happened that way are pretty obvious. It's, it's a dependable source of funds normally. 
it's a safe source of funds normally because think it's a collateralized marketplace. It's, it's basically everything that you would ever want in a wholesale market mechanism. So the fact, and plus the fact that it was located offshore had all the ingredients in, involved that made it such that it could, it could become the, the central focus of this global dollar system. Now, we're, because it's, it's in the middle of everything, because it is central, unlike central banks, it has all of these tentacles that spread into all sorts of other marketplaces, including stock markets. Because you think about, you know, hedge funds and other leverage players, including banks. Banks are, in a lot of ways, are nothing more than sophisticated hedge funds, the most sophisticated hedge funds. So you have all of this leverage that's provided and available in the repo market that includes all of these risky entities funding their risky activities in a leveraged way. So if, you know, a hedge fund is getting, is sourcing funding through the repo market, it's also dabbling in the stock market. You take away that repo market liquidity from a hedge fund or whatever risky player that's, that's normally sourcing their, their portfolio funding from repo, you know, there's a link to the stock market through these risky players. It's because it's a vital source of funds for so many parts of the financial system. It has an indirect, but a very, very, uh, at times like uh, March, uh, uh, last March, it has a very uh, possibly negative impact on those other markets because of how it works through all of these, you know, hidden tentacles. One of the questions that we're going to read right now, this, this question from Francesco Sprigi, May 3rd, 2020, is actually representative of many questions. And it goes to what you were just talking about, repo, uh, funding, liquidity. It's a very common question on YouTube that I come across is, people are asking, why take the cash that you have, go into, go purchase a U.S. Treasury bond so that you can get funding, cash funding, from the repo market. You already had the cash, and then you bought it, and you spent it on Treasury to put up as collateral to get cash. Jeff, does it have to do with leverage? What's the answer? The answer to that is it's fungible. <laughs> the idea of, that you're actually buying something with cash that you have on your books. I don't think that is not necessarily the case. It's a fungible process where you simultaneously get the cash and buy the security at the same time from the repo market. It's in one, in one sense, it's, it's moving money from pockets, of, you know, from one pocket to the next and through, uh, through third parties and fourth parties, if you're, you're swapping collateral and everything else. Um, it's, it's really about the mechanism of balance sheet expansion and, or balance sheet contraction as the case may be. So if you're already funded a position, for example, where you're a hedge fund, let's just use hedge funds as, 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 our, as a crude example, where you have a portfolio of junk bonds, for example, and you, you're, you're, you're using them in the repo market. Well, you don't put up, you don't have cash and you buy them in the repo. You put up the securities at the same time you, you source the cash. You're doing everything simultaneously. And so if you lose, if, if you got to sell a junk bond because it's no longer repoable, then you got to find a, a treasury bill that you can quote unquote buy and use in, in the, the repo market to source funding to keep your portfolio positions liquid. So it's, you know, the, the short answer to that question is that the repo market is as fungible on all sides of it as it is on the collateral side. There's different ways. You have to think of these things as a portfolio of securities, a portfolio which includes a portfolio, a menu of assets, and a menu of liabilities. And so it's not of, you know, it's not like you take dollar bills or Federal Reserve notes out of your pocket and you go to the local grocery store and buy a treasury bill. 
That's not what you're doing. You're running a portfolio of positions that has all different types of assets and liabilities. What you're really trying to do is match assets with liabilities that are most efficient towards your goals or whatever they, you know, whatever your risk, risk return tolerances are. So it's not a matter of buying treasury bills. And, and of course, we have to remember too, it's not just the hedge funds that are doing this. There's also dealers involved. In fact, the dealers are probably the central point on the collateral side too. So dealers are buying treasury bills knowing that they can charge an exorbitant fee to the desperate hedge fund. So there's all sorts of ways in which these treasury bills have demand that's not necessarily the same thing as you know, buying it, quote unquote, you know, technically buying a treasury bill with cash that you already have. And I know I, I get that twice, you know, that's what you're, we're taught to think of these things as individual transactions. So, you know, I, I swap cash and I get a treasury bill, but then I go to the repo market to get cash. I mean, it doesn't seem to make any sense. But when you start to, when you start to think about it from a portfolio perspective and see how you have a, you know, a silo or a, a, a menu of assets and then you have to match them with liabilities it's a fungible kind of concept where treasury bills sit at the very top of the pyramid for repo funding. Just to dig in a little bit more. So is it that we are, because we're imagining that we're taking it out of our pocket and transacting, that's not how hedge funds operate, right? They, they already have spent quote unquote all the cash and they want to further leverage up to make further investments and they have to put up collateral of their existing assets for further funding to make further leveraged investments. Is it leverage that's driving this process? Or if I'm way off, can you maybe define what you mean by fungible? Well, it's obviously this is all about leverage because that's, that's what the repo market is. It's, it's the most extreme form of funding leverage. Therefore, that's why you know, a lot of risky activities end up through uh, being funded through the repo market. But if you're a hedge fund, you don't put up your own cash. I mean, that's, that's the most extreme form of leverage is you don't need your own cash. You, you borrow it from the market. So, you know, it's no different than saying, hey, I'll go to the marketplace and, or I'll go to a local bank and I'll borrow some funds and then I'll take the funds that the bank gives me and I'll go buy some assets with it. The only thing with the repo market is those things happen simultaneously. You don't need to go borrow the cash from the bank and then go buy, use that cash to buy a, uh, a security. You can just do it all at once. That's what dealers do. It's a one-stop shop. You know, if you want a treasury bill, I'll give you the cash for it and the security. You know, it's, it happens at the same time. So it's not like you have your own cash and then you go buy something. You have a menu of options that you can do to run a portfolio of securities. And usually what you're trying to do is match return and funding and risk characteristics so that your assets and liability, whatever your goal or mandate is that you can, you can, you know, you can fund them, you can, you can uh, generate these returns in the most efficient manner possible. And the repo market makes that absolutely possible, which is why it became such an important and integral part of the global financial system. Unbelievable. I am being paid uh, by the question. So I'm going to ask some more questions and try to get through a few more. The next one, right back to repo again. And it's, this, it's both by Joachim Saad on March 25th and Joachim Peterson, March 31st. And they're just asking, can you talk about repledging in the repo market, rehypothecation? Does this actually take place, Jeff? 
Well, you know, it's it's somewhat of a controversial topic because um, you talk to some people and they swear, they absolutely swear that rehypothecation just does not happen. So, you know, before we get to rehypothecation, let's go let's go through repledging first. Again, we'll use the hedge fund example because that's that's really where these things start. You're a hedge fund. You want to fund your portfolio position, but you don't have any connection to the repo market. Or if you go on the repo market, you you know you're maybe not you're not going to you're not going to know the players. You're not going to know how to you don't maybe you're not set up to do that. So what you do is you go to a dealer bank that is that's that's a you know long serving member of the repo market. It knows its way around. And so what you say is. Look, I want to fund this portfolio of securities. I want to fund it through the repo market, but I don't. I don't have any direct connection to it. I'll do it with you. So I'll buy these securities again, fungible buy. I'll 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 take these securities and then I'll I'll, I'll custody them with you, Mr. Dealer Bank, and then you'll take those securities that you have now in your custody and you'll go into the repo market on your own account, but actually on my behalf and fund these trades through the repo market. So it's, it's essentially it's a it's a two step process where the dealer bank is taking in securities from the hedge fund and then repledging them in repo on behalf of its hedge fund client. Because you know, the dealer bank says, I want to be able to provide you the best possible source of funding. If I do that on my own account, the, the rate's going to be much higher. If you allow me to repledge these securities in repo, it'll be much lower, be much better for you. But that opens the door of you know, now the hedge or the, the dealer bank has the has these securities in its account where it has the power to repledge those securities in repo. And it does so on its own house account with the idea that, okay, this, this funds I'm going to get from the repo market, I'm going to use for my hedge fund client that gave me the securities in the first place. But what if I, you know, push comes to shove and I really don't have collateral that I need for my own activities as the dealer bank. What if I just, you know, rehypothecate those same securities and use them for myself? That's where rehypothecation comes in. Once you're repledging assets that are already owned by somebody else for their for their benefit, is it really that difficult to imagine, especially the, these Wall Street banks where everything is really fungible and hard to keep track of, that they're not double dipping essentially. So that's where repledging and rehypothecation comes from. And the clue we get that that actually does occur are those repo fails. If this was all a smoothly functioning system, you would expect there wouldn't be repo fails during these stressed periods. Or even just meals, even just regular periods, right? I mean, why is there 50, 70, 80 billion in repo fails every week? Every week. That's, those are low levels. What that says is that the system is so fungible, it's so fluid, and so, you know, it, it's hard to keep track of that, you know, these kinds of things are, are, are basically the, mar the marketplace saying it's just the cost of doing business. We accept that this stuff happens. We accept that it's fungible. And this is just the way that it works. We've all gotten used to it. We've all been normalized to what, to the outside, appears to be a really disgusting type of practice. And it really is. It's, it's anathema to capitalism. It's anathema to the idea of title and ownership and all these things. But it's a very key central part to how this thing works. You know, it's, it, everybody has to look the other way. And when everybody's looking the other way as a part of the normal practice of the repo market, obviously you're going to get into some situations where it's abused. And, you know, repledging isn't necessarily that abused, but it can be abused. Next question comes from Keith Rand, and he's asking about gold price plunges when there are collateral fails in the repo market, or as you call them, gold slams. Keith, I wrote up an article on this subject 
And if you look for the title, uh, Gold Slams in the Time of COVID-19, you'll find it at the Wheaton Precious Metals blog. Read that. If you don't understand any of it, come back. If I fail to explain it, come back and ask the question again, and we'll have Jeff answer the question. Here's a question from Andrew Escalar, March 26th, and he is asking, why was it that still easy for corporations to get cheap loans prior to the crisis? And he gives an example of in the Philippines that there was pretty cheap financing of around five to 6% before March. And Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is a question of non-linearity. It's not that when liquidity is tight, there's no credit available. It's just much less credit versus what we had come to expect. And your answer is exactly right, Emil. It's, it's, again, it's, it's, it gets back to the issue of, do you see, what, what don't you see? You know, it's, it's, yeah, some companies are able to, to fund their operations and borrow and, and do whatever they need to do on the cheap, but the list, of, the list of companies that are able to do that has been pared back significantly since before, say, 2007. Back yes. in, before the, the first global financial crisis, Companies all over the world and governments and everybody, everybody, everybody could fund cheaply. And so after 2008, after the first global financial crisis, what happened is that list of, of, of businesses and uh, companies that are able to fund themselves, especially in the context of loans versus securities. Um, loans is another issue and another part of the credit markets that you have to factor as well, too, that, you know, there's, there's yes, um, even in the Great Depression, Companies like General Motors were able to source any, any amount of debt that they wanted to, while smaller companies or, or even some larger companies that were less, less of a, a well-known credit weren't. That's what we're really talking about here. It's not that you know, some companies can fund at real low rates. It's how many? Is it the same amount as before? And that's really what, you know, what you're showing here, Emil, on, on these graphs is that, yeah, companies can raise money cheaply, but not nearly as many as they used to be. That's right. It's what you don't see that matters. What the, the transactions that used to happen before 2007 that don't happen anymore. That's right. So what we're looking at is that the non-financial corporates have raised more debt than 2007, but they have fallen well off trend, not as far off trend as the financial sector or the household sector, but they are off trend. So money is tighter not as many people are able to source funding. We'll move on to the next question. This one is from Jules, March 31st. Interest rate swaps. Can you explain a little bit why, when they're turning negative, what are they signaling? Well, literally, they signal nonsense, right? When you look at an interest rate swap, first of all, an interest rate swap is, is quoted by the price of its fixed leg. And it's usually compared, that fixed leg price is usually compared to the same maturity U.S. Treasury. So for a 10-year interest rate swap, just a plain vanilla swap, the quoted price of, you know, say it's 3%, where does that compare to the U.S. Treasury yield? If the U.S. Treasury yield is 2.5%, there's a positive spread of 50 basis points. That makes sense because what you're saying is the market says that the counterparty on the other side of the swap, the person, you know, the bank usually that you're involved with, that's doing this, this interest rate swap with you is a little bit riskier than the U.S. government, which is, I mean, that makes perfect sense. 
So if the, the price of the interest rate swap, the fixed leg quote falls below that two and a half percent, say it gets down to 2%, now you have a negative swap spread, negative 50 basis points where the market appears to be saying, I think the US government is more risky than the financial counterparty that's doing this derivative transaction on the other side of the trade. That's just not true. That's the way the swap ends up. And it's linked to, well, first of all, not just uh, uh, um, perceptions of risk in the marketplace. It's actually linked into uh, you know, money, money market conditions and repo and other places. That's the floating side, LIBOR, the spreads and, the, and those things there. But what it's really saying is that the market is at such, a, you know, such an imbalance, such havoc going on, that it can't really price its products in a, man, in a manner that's consistent with how we intuitively believe intuitively intuitively believe these things are supposed to work. So it's, it's literal nonsense. And the reason it's literal nonsense is because banks that are on the other side of this, these transactions who would normally police these kinds of things by expanding their balance sheets or contracting, you know, all the dealer activities that, that banks undertake to maintain a normal market and normal market price, they're not doing those things because they have their own problems. You know, usually it's a liquidity problem, but for whatever reason, the dealer banks who are supposed to keep these markets functioning are no longer keeping them functioning. And so that's really the message that we take from swap spreads when they turn negative, they turn more negative. What it's telling us is that the banks are not doing what we need them to do in these, these deep, complex, hidden money markets. That's really all it is. Next question comes from Arnoldson, asked on April 4th, and he is channeling the movie Margin Call. In Margin Call, the CEO calls a late-night meeting and asks an analyst to explain to him what the situation is as they are on the precipice of a 2008-style liquidity crisis, and he asks to explain it to him as if he was a five-year-old or a golden retriever. Jeff, the question here by Arnoldson is one we get all the time. Can you explain how bank reserves are not monetarily useful Jeff, you're welcome to use crayons, or if you prefer to bark your answer. Now, let's just, let's just keep it very, very simple. Uh, if you were to give a bank reserve to a five-year-old, what would they do with it? You know, I, it's, a bank reserve is not money in the sense that it can't be used as a medium of exchange. It's not something that you can take into a grocery store and come out of it with anything other than a shoplifting charge. It's... It, you know, it's not something that you or I or anybody can access. The only people, the only, not people, the only entities that it can hold a bank reserve are these 24 primary dealers that are set up and, and authorized by the Federal Reserve to conduct business with each other. So a bank reserve, nothing, you know, forget the asset swap, forget all the complicated stuff. Bank reserve is an account that banks have with the Federal Reserve. That's all they are. And so if it becomes, if you want it to become monetary uh, uh, in some way, become a medium of exchange, it requires the bank that holds that balance out of the account to do something further with it. So forget anything else. The fact that the bank must do something with a bank reserve balance means that the bank, what the bank does matters, not what the central bank matters. So if the, if the, if the Fed raises its level of bank reserves and, and spreads them all out through the primary dealer network, but the primary dealers decide we don't want to do anything. We don't want to, we don't want to lend. We don't want to buy securities. We don't want to do anything with these bank reserves. End of story. They're not money. They just sit there. They're inert. They don't do anything without motivation and animation by the banking system. And without that, because the banking system has its own uh, constraints and limitations, 
So without the banking system actually doing something with them, they just sit there. They're just inert. They're just an accounting balance. They're just, they're just there for Jay Powell to show you and say, look, I must be printing money. Therefore you, you must start believing in inflation. It's, 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 it's really literally smoke and mirrors because outside of the banking system, these things don't exist. They're just, they're just an accounting, accounting entry. Now, it's a much more complicated answer on the, you know, when we get into the interbank markets, but in very simple terms, that's really all it is. The banking system must turn these reserves into something useful. And if the banking system decides we don't, we're not doing that because look at, look at, look at the way the world is right now. That's it. End of story. They're just, they just sit there. They're just a nerd. It's a matter of risk. And it would apply to us as well. If the central bank printed a billion dollars and put it in the parking lot, parking lot for us to get, we would get it unless it was surrounded by a volcano uh, with sharks with lasers on them and it was irradiated. We wouldn't actually go get it. The risks would be too high. And I know that hopefully the point exa- uh, survives the exaggeration, but the banks, the commercial banks find it too risky to take this money and make use of it. We'll move on to the next question. And this is a question that we've gotten from a couple of people. And it's a different kind of question. It's not so much about the guts of the system, but it's more personal. And it comes from Jennifer Gonzalez and Robert Miller, early May. And the idea is, what do you do? Not you, Jeff, but what do you do as a person, as an individual, these great forces of history, the monetary orders disintegrating around you? What is the general advice for the individual? Well, the general investment advice for an individual, or even just personal advice, is pay attention. Don't just do things blindly because that's what you hear and see on television. There are all sorts of ways to invest, even in the worst of times. But but doing so entails risk. It entails a great deal of effort and knowledge. Therefore, you have to be, you have to understand the situation that you're in so that you can tailor what what can be done with whether or not you should be doing it. You know, it's really a question of being aware of how things really are so that you can try to understand how things will unfold in the future, where the risks are, where the opportunities, where they really are, not just what you hear and see on television or what you hear and see written on the internet, so that you can make informed decisions about what's best for you. Other than, you know, going into specifics, that's really all you can say about investing is it's understanding the world as it actually is so that you can spot opportunities and realize, you know, maybe that's a good opportunity, but it's not for me. Or maybe that's a real pothole and I need to do adjust what I'm doing. It's really about actual knowledge and understanding. And hopefully we are doing our part with that. Next question comes from Andreas Brown, May 11th. And this is a question that uh, speaks to inflation. And hopefully we've sort of answered it in the early part of the show by talking about that if the reserves or the money isn't put to use by the private sector, if it isn't acted upon, then it just stands there inert and it doesn't work. But the question here from Andreas is, why does inflation sometimes work and sometimes not? In some countries and in some periods, it seems when central banks are behaving badly or federal governments are, print, are spending wildly and wantonly, it seems like there is inflation. And other times, there isn't. Is there, a, is there a single thread that sort of explains why we see these two different scenarios take place throughout history? 
Well, to keep it generic, it's really about, again, what you don't see, the background conditions. Like, for, you know, for example, you know, Zimbabwe. Why did Zimbabwe end up in hyperinflation? Well, because the background, background conditions behind what the Zimbabwean government was doing were conducive for that to, to happen. So is, is, is the government and the central bank swimming with everybody else? Is it moving in the, right, in the same direction as the other system already is? Or is it, is it is the system moving in its face like we have as, as a condition right now? You know, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government are trying to stop the hidden deflationary forces that are coming at it. And so it's, they're trying to push against the tide, which they just don't have the ability and the might to do so. So it's really, you know, what are the background conditions behind these, these various scenarios or these various, you know, historical outcomes? That's really what determines what actually happens. And what you see, especially in U.S. history and a lot of major economy history, is that in the, in the face of these kinds of events, whether inflationary or deflationary, the central bank and the government are often very limited. I'll give you the counterexample. The 1970s, the great inflation. The Fed and the federal government worked together hand in hand in the 60s, or late 60s and early 70s to stop that sucker. They did everything they possibly could think of, except, you know, real things. They did everything mm. they could think of to try to stop inflation, yet it would keep continue to go on for another decade. So it's not, you know, people I think ascribe way too much power and authority to central banks in particular, because we've all been taught that, especially since the 1980s, that that's, you know, central bank is this mighty force. If it wants to, if it ever gets its mind to it, it can create inflation or it can stop deflation. It can do whatever it wants when historically speaking, what you find is the exact opposite. And it's really, it really has a very, very poor track record. And the reason is what you don't see, the background condition. That's what really matters. And that's why we spend so much time on these things, picking apart the repo market and collateral, because we want to understand what is the background condition behind all of these things? What is really going on? Not, not, what, not what the Fed's balance sheet's doing or the level of bankers are. What is that background condition so that we can understand what are the, what are the real forces at work here? I, we have two questions left, but I want to circle back to what you were just saying, because in our minds, we all believe that if the, if the central bank was given dictatorial powers, it could create inflation, but it doesn't have dictatorial powers. So therefore, it could create inflation if it did real things. You were saying that during the 60s and 70s, they tried everything except for real things. It's a question that we're not going to show here, but I've seen it on the comments. It's sort of, Jeff, you've been promoted. You're in charge of the Fed. The real things, what would be those real things? Well, in, in terms of the modern system, the, 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 the mature Eurodollar system, it's really about banks, balance sheet construction, and the way that they you know, dynamically redistribute dollar resources, credit resources, Again, the, the, the lines between credit and money have so blurred that it's difficult to, to, to tell the difference. That's why bank balance sheets are so important in everything they do. So what you have to do is understand how banks actually work and how they work together. And, so, and it's, not, you know, it's, not a rigid it's not a rigid static system that works the same way to, you know, yesterday, today, tomorrow, and, and every day thereafter. There are often these ad hoc networks that banks get together, they do certain things, they trade liabilities, you do these things often in the dark and in offshore places that never see the light of day, except for maybe if, if, it, if a price hits the tape somewhere. And so what we need to do is understand how these things actually work. 
not just on a, in a, in a you know, 30,000 feet level looking at from above, but actually understanding the system as it is in all its you know, complexity and details so that we can figure out what, is, you know, what are these exact fault lines that cause these ad hoc networks and these dynamic marketplaces to, to, you know, to fall apart, essentially, to become deflationary, to become that, that, that grand background force that prevents the, th the kinds of things that we want to have happen. It's really about understanding more than it is anything, you know, uh, the Fed doesn't, doesn't understand, doesn't want to understand the system. They just want to send a bunch of signals to everybody and say, look, we're, we're, we're lowering the federal funds rate, that's stimulus, so act as if it's stimulus. Well, no, we need to, you know, how, is, how are we actually supposed to stimulate? Where are, the, where are the ways that we could get into this, this complex hidden system, this shadow money system, and actually stimulate? Where can we actually, an, you know, animate um, monetary and, and balance sheet resources. What are the things that might be actually successful? Do we need to call down to JP Morgan's um, exotics desk and say, look, we need you to extend X number of, you know, ridiculous derivative trades across this, this, and this. I mean, it might be that, it might be that detailed and, and that, that esoteric, but that's not what the central bank actually does. The central bank stands above everything and just assumes that if it signals something, everyone obeys. And that's just not how it works. The banking system doesn't take your signal for anything other than a signal, and it's just going to go on its merry way, whether that merry way is, is a positive or a negative. I love that answer because it's not, there's no silver bullet. It's just uh, learning, understanding, conducting research, and being flexible. We've got two questions left. The first one here, so give it about two minutes each, Jeff. The first one comes from, it's from Twitter. At the Carefree Bear, it's very important that you guys make sure it's, we're talking about Baloo here, not Care Bears. Big difference. At Big difference. the Carefree Bear. Yes, big difference. Jeff, he wants to know, is all this stuff that we're talking about in the financial system, does it, does it, how does it ever actually transmit into the real economy? Does it? Well, no, yeah, the interbank is... is it's, it's, it's a, a fluid place, but it's in many ways it's detached and it's indirect. It influences the behavior of all sorts of uh, economic and financial agents that do interact directly in the real economy, for you know, not just banks, but non-banks as well. If you have liquidity problems because you're, you're funding your financial activities in, say, the repo market, and you, and you have difficulties in the repo market, that will impact some of your real-world activities. In the financial sense, it's a pretty simple thing. If you're a bank that depends on liquidity and you know you have liquidity profile you have liquidity targets and you have all sorts of, of numbers and quantitative uh, of uh, quantitative constraints that tell you when you're you're uh, in normal operation if you suddenly run into the perception or the reality of liquidity problems that's going to impact your real world activities if, it, if you're just simply a bank and you, you do simple lending and loans if you got liquidity issues you're gonna you're not going to do as many loans and so that restricts credit into the real economy and it influences non-bank behavior too. And you think, you know, think about it in the context of global trade. Global trade is heavily financed in every single aspect along the way. So if there's dollar problems for, you know, uh, everybody, you know, global trade chains, uh, they, they, they tend to break down and that's a real world hindrance to real world activities where liquidity becomes, uh, which is, you know, starts out as sort of a detached indirect, sort of esoteric kind of thing 
it does quickly become a real-world factor in the way it influences first behavior and then activity. Our last question from at TM Bowler, and it has to do with something that we're all wondering about. What is your definition of inflation? Or perhaps more specifically, how come this asset price inflation? I haven't checked what the stock market's doing, Jeff, because I don't need to. It's up. It's always up. You're talking about some sort of economic disorder. It doesn't matter. Asset prices are always inflating up. Can you talk about that? Well, we talk about inflation, monetary inflation in particular. I mean, it's a very complex topic, and it's also one that it's, it tends to be very emotional. People react to it because, you know, a lot of inflation, a lot of inflationary effects impact our daily lives. For example, most people talk about food inflation. Well, food inflation has been relatively, I hate to use the word robust, but that's the truth. You know, food prices tend to go up much faster um, education prices, healthcare prices, those kinds of things tend to go up much faster than other places. So we, we, we emphasize those things that we do see and kind of, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily factor or appreciate or realize the things that we don't. So inflation is what are all the prices in the economy doing? Not just the ones that impact us on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, our basic necessities, but also the prices of other things. And I don't want to get into a situation where I'm like, you know, Bill Dudley, and I think it was 2010 or 2011 where he talked about iPads and, you know, yeah, food prices are going through the roof, but at least your iPad's cheaper. But that's the truth. There's a the combination of things, whether through technological advance or monetary problems or economic problems that result in a general trend in prices. And that's, you know, it's a difficult concept because what is the general trend in prices? Does the CPI accurately measure inflation? Well, probably not, but you know, is there a better way of looking at prices? So the idea of inflation and deflation, and we need to be specific, specific about deflation too, it's about the general trend. What is really going on overall and everything else? And it's not just the CPI, it's what do you see in financial markets? And I'm not talking about stocks, obviously, but you know, what does the bond market say? The bond market is where you're really discounting these kinds of very serious, very real, and also very hidden economic factors, very real economic factors. Now, the stock market, the stock market isn't directly connected to the monetary system, and it hasn't been connected to the monetary system since the 1930s. There's no call money market anymore, which is how we got from you know, the 1929 crash to the Great Depression. There was a direct link between bank reserves, bank money, and the call money market, and stock prices, which is sort of a crude repo transaction. Essentially, since then, the stock market has been detached from the real economy. It's a savings instrument. It's not a monetary instrument anymore. What that means is people make, make decisions based on their own savings. But it also means in the modern era that portfolio managers are by and large making those decisions for most people. So when the Federal Reserve is doing its signaling with you know, stimulus, QE, all these other things, it's really signaling to portfolio managers that, hey, I want you to go buy stocks. Not, you know, I'm not gonna give you the money to do it. I just want you to tell all your clients that now is the time to buy stocks because you believe in the Greenspan put. And so it's, it's an element of the savings part of the equation that people, again, don't really appreciate and see. And portfolio managers, by and large, this financial services industry is very much geared up to buying at the, at the, the the, the, uh, the first sign of anything that makes it seem like there's lower risk involved, that it's, hey, everything's clear, 
we're going to buy and we're going to buy across the board for all our clients. That's what ends up happening. The Fed signals to portfolio managers who hit the buy button for all their clients and all their clients usually are um, usually very, very much in favor of doing the same thing because everybody wants to have their money work for them. That's the idea behind all this. And that's what the Federal Reserve is really trying to use to its advantage when it comes to the, to the stock market. It's not a monetary thing. It's a psychological thing. Jeff Snyder, Chief Investment Officer of Alhambra Investments, where you can find his work daily. If you have any questions about it, post them on the YouTube comments section on Twitter, or you can send in some mail. A number of you have sent in some mail. A lot of these actually were hate mail, uh, some death threats, and the smattering of ransom notes. And we love the passion, so keep it coming. And we're going to do another show, another mailbag. I think Jeff and I both enjoyed this. So keep the questions coming, and we will talk to everyone again on our next episode. Thank you.